Welcome to the Dipshit Files, number 54. Wow. Hello, Mrs. Scriptkeeper. Hello. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And, and I'm and I'm the, the Mrs. You're, you're the one that's going to lead. I'm, I'm the thing. You're the one that drives this show. <laughs> and I'm going to be on my best behavior today because yeah. this one's, you know, it's a cold case. We don't usually do these. Right. Uh, well, it's no longer a cold case as of 2021, yeah. but it's technically Washington State's oldest cold, cold case was solved mm-hmm. in uh, 2021. And I want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. There's all sorts of technology involved mm-hmm. in this. There is. Now, a, a little bit of a, a side note here. Forgive me. <laughs> yes. So we, right before we pushed record, I went to, actually, he had already pushed record and we redid this, but I opened my mouth to say something. And you know when you have that, it's not really a burp yet. No. It's sitting like at that soft I mean, yes, part no. yeah. uh, of your throat down by your neck. Yeah. Down, it's and, a little bubble It's a little bubble. And yeah. it just kind of goes la la la. Well, there's a few bubbles. It's like a, a little army <laughs> yeah, of bubbles. It makes this little rattling noise. And a bubble peed. Exactly. So anyways, that happened. So forgive me. Um, hopefully we can edit it out if that does happen. But we were sitting here chatting about it. And uh, we've, we've all experienced that. Right. And you wanted to just tell I just wanted to, thousands know, of people about yeah. it. It's like, a, it's like a dog burp. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Where you're like, oh, that's not going to be good. Close your mouth, dog. All right. Well, this is Dipshit Files number 54, the second one of season two. And this one's based in our hometown of the yes, Lilac City. Yes. So let's Did you just say one. Lilac? Yeah. How do you spell that? Li- Lilac? Is it Lilac? It's Lilac City. Lilac. Lock is L O C K. Yeah, I'm not or in Spokane. L O C. You think it's a lilac? Isn't it lilac? Fuck, I don't know now. Oh, fuck. It probably is. Am I going. You're lilac. smarter than me, so what the hell? <laughs> but it's my always, hometown. I've always said and heard lilac. I've been calling it the lilac city. Lilac. I like never lock heard... better. Whoa. He's a great philosopher. It's... Let's move to the thing. Okay. Open up the file, All wife. All right, here we go. So today we're going to talk about possibly the most well-known cold case in our city Spokane. and the entire state. Washington. On the afternoon of March 6, 1959, nine-year-old Candy Rogers left her home in West Central Spokane to sell campfire mints in and around her neighborhood. As the hours passed, there was no sign of her return. Despair began to set in for her family as they feared the worst. And then, after two grueling weeks and many large-scale efforts to find her, a heart-wrenching discovery was made. Her lifeless body was found deep in the heart of a dense woods, far from the familiar surroundings of her home. Despite a long and tireless investigation by detectives, the mystery surrounding her death remained unsolved for many decades. But eventually, the truth was uncovered over six decades later. Crazy. So, what exactly happened to Candy? Did she get lost in the woods and become prey to a wild animal, or did she suffer a fate far worse? Today, we're looking at one of the oldest cases to ever be solved, the case of Candy Rogers. Today's case occurred in our very own hometown, Spokane, Washington. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Spokane, 
It's located in the state of Washington in the United States. Spokane is known for its rich cultural heritage and natural beauty, making it a popular destination for outdoor enthusiasts. Nature nerds. <laughs> Nature dorks. Well, hey, 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 I love being outside. Dork. Dork of the With trees. With the Spokane River running through the center, the city offers a thriving downtown area with a plethora of shopping, dining, and entertainment options. And potholes. The city, downtown pothole, yes. Mm. The city is also known as the birthplace of Father's Day mm. and mm. for hosting the annual Lilac Festival. Okay, if you say so. Which celebra- celebrates the blooming of the city's signature flower, not to mention Hoop Fest, the largest three on three basketball tournament in, in the world. In the whole damn planet. Yeah. Okay, so side note this place gets packed yeah, it does. during Hoop Fest. Of course, yeah. of course, not during COVID. No. But. Typically, yeah. it is packed. Yeah, for dozens of years. I'm not sure how long it's been going. I, I played it a few times. Yeah. I even won it once. I not went the down there thing, a few times. My it's usually so hot. Yeah. It's like 105 yeah. degrees on Hoopfest. And they do it on asphalt. I know. But, yeah. So Candy was born in 1950 to parents Elaine and Carl Rogers. Since she was an only child, her parents greatly cherished her. At some point, Elaine and Carl's marriage crumbled for unknown reasons, and this caused them to divorce and go their separate ways. However, Candy remained in the care of her mother, who was a schoolteacher at the time. Elaine did everything in her power to ensure she provided for her daughter as best as she could. Candy was a popular face in her community, and those who knew her described her as a pleasant and friendly little girl who loved to laugh. In 1959, Candy was nine years old and was a fourth grader at Holmes Elementary School. Like most girls within her age range, Candy also joined a youth organization known as the Bluebirds. The Bluebirds were younger members of the Campfire Girls, and the organization aims to provide girls with education and recreational activities so as to encourage personal growth, self-reliance, and a connection to nature. Is this like pre-brownies? It's a totally, it's it's similar to the Girl Scouts and Brownies, but it's like a side shoot. Okay. I mean, it's not a side shoot. They're, they're separate from each other. They're they not. still exist, I wonder? I think they do, yeah. Cool, okay. How come our daughter wasn't a bluebird or a brownie or a goddamn ninja I don't, turtle? I don't fucking know. No, I don't. Anywho, it's uh, Candy became an active member of their activities, which included camping trips, community services, hiking, and a host of other outdoor and community-based services. Mm. She enjoyed every moment and took on every activity with enthusiasm. Candy was growing into a smart and happy girl with a future that looked very bright, and everyone around her could see that. However... No one was expecting that a heartbreaking tragedy would soon take her away and shake the entire community to its core. And now it's time for the Lilac City's oldest cold case solved. And it's sad. On March 6th, 1959, Candy returned from school to the home she shared with her mother. It was a Friday and she looked forward to spending time with her friends the following day. However, she also had something else she wanted to do first. The Bluebirds were trying to raise funds for their upcoming activities, and as part of the efforts to do so, members were required to sell a variety of chocolates in their neighborhood. Candy had seven boxes of campfire mints that she had planned to sell that day. She asked her mother, Elaine, if she could leave home to do this, and she was given approval. However, 
Elaine reminded her to not spend too much time outdoors and to return home before dark. It was a rule that Candy had always followed, but Elaine still made sure to remind her of it every time she left home. Now, when I was doing this research, I was thinking, gosh, she's nine. She can't be outside. Then I realized it's March, early March in Spokane. Mm-hmm. Your, your nine-year-old, early March, Spokane, it's fucking chilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Just need a coat. <laughs> Not a wool coat. Right. Well, well you know, it, coat, I, mean. I don't know. Depending on the year, it gets, sometimes it's really cold well, in it's March. Well, it's bullshit. I mean, it's sunny and then it's cold and it's, I like it. You have to layer in March. Yeah. You have to be ready for everything. Right. And that could be the full time. Yeah. You have to wear, thing. wear your bathing like, yeah. suit and your parka. Yeah. With your little, the I don't even know what it's called, with a little ear flappy things hat. I, I love it when it hails. <laughs> when it's sunny and then all of a sudden a rain cloud comes by and then yes. it hails torrential. And then you're like, what mm. the fuck just Well, happened? like today, we had this storm blow through and it was blustery, gusty. Uh, it wasn't really raining. It was sprinkling, but the wind was blowing so hard that it stung your face when it hit, even yeah. though it was tiny little uh, water droplets. And the sky was ominously gray yes but the sun was still shining on the horizon through that so it gave it this i don't know it lit up the fog i know it was very interesting it was beautiful sorry we just wanted to talk about the weather with you first i'm sorry i don't know why (laughs) it's beautiful around here right now it is so had elaine known that particular day would be different she would never have let her daughter leave the house Candy ate a quick snack of an oatmeal cookie and also played with her family dog briefly. Then she grabbed the boxes of campfire mitts and made her way out of the house. Now, by now, it was about 4 p.m. There were several girls of her age selling chocolate door-to-door that afternoon, and she joined them. Uh, Nobody knows exactly what happened afterwards, but Candy never returned home. Hmm. At around 5.30 p.m., Elaine began to get worried. She knew it was unlike Candy to remain outside this late. As the minutes slowly dragged by, it seemed like hours to Elaine, and she kept listening for the familiar sound of Candy's footsteps approaching the house, but they never came. At around 6 p.m., her fear became just too much to handle, and she was sure something had gone wrong. She quickly informed Candy's grandfather, Stanley Newton, about the situation. Other relatives, friends, and neighbors were also informed that Candy had not yet returned home, and by 6.30 p.m., a small group of people were out looking for her. They began by asking people around the neighborhood if they knew where she was, and some people confirmed that they had actually seen her walking around earlier, carrying the boxes of campfire mints that she was selling, but nobody seemed to know exactly where she could be. Around 7 p.m., Candy's grandfather, Newton, and his friends were actually almost hit by a speeding car, but they managed to jump out of harm's way. The close call left them shaken, but their attention quickly returned to finding Candy as dusk began to fall upon the city. Despite the difficulties of searching in the fading light, the men held on to hope that Candy would be found safe and sound before nightfall. At some point, though, The authorities were also notified about the missing girl, and soon police officers and sheriff's deputies also joined in the search. At around 9 p.m. that same day, a group of searchers came across some boxes of campfire mints. They were found lying across Pettit Drive, and many believe that they had been the same boxes Candy had been selling. 
Six campfire mint boxes were found that night, but Candy had left the home with seven. That night's search was unsuccessful. There was no sign of Candy anywhere. Elaine did her best to sleep. However, she couldn't. Her worry was just too great. She resorted to sitting up, drinking coffee, and waiting for sunrise, hoping the new day would bring good news. Throughout the night, many thoughts raced through her mind, and she wondered if her daughter was okay. The uncertainty was just too much to bear, and she silently cried and prayed that Candy would return home safely. The following morning was a Saturday, and by then, almost everyone in the city had gotten the news that Candy was missing. Concerned citizens set out in large numbers to begin the search for the day. Officers rode on horseback as well as in vehicles to conduct the search. They looked through the woods and along all major roads. The Air Force also assisted in the search by providing a helicopter. The aircraft was boarded by four trained personnel, as well as the pilot, and they took it to the air. While flying over Spokane River, the pilot failed to see a high-tension wire until the very last moment and ended up flying into it. The effect was immediate. The helicopter spiraled out of control and crashed into the Spokane River, instantly killing three of the five men on board. Airman Merlise R. Ray, Sergeant William A. McDonnell, and Lieutenant Kenneth G. Fawtek were the three men who tragically lost their lives on that day. Everyone who had joined in the search for Candy was saddened by the tragic event, but it did little to discourage them from searching for her. They remained determined and intensified their efforts. None of them wanted the death of the three individuals to be in vain, but despite everyone's best efforts, they just had no luck locating Candy. For several days, it was as if she had simply vanished without a trace. With each passing day that Candy remained missing, Elaine began to look like a shadow of herself. She refused to touch her meals, and she would constantly just sit and stare into space. Mm. Not knowing the whereabouts of her only daughter was slowly driving her insane. The burden on her heart was just too much to bear. On March 22, 1956, it was 16 days that Candy had been missing, and it was the day she would be found. That afternoon, two airmen named Howard Lawrence and Richard Bergen were out hunting woodchucks in a wooded area about seven miles away from Candy's home. Upon entering a small clearing in the forest, they noticed a small pair of blue suede shoes. The delicate craftsmanship of the shoes and the small size indicated that they had belonged to a child. Mm -hmm. They were confused and wondered how the shoes had gotten there so far away from town. After looking around and waiting a while to see if anyone would come out and retrieve the shoes, they picked them up and made their way back to the base. The two men could not stop talking about the discovery they made in the woods, and the news uh, soon spread like wildfire throughout town. The shoes were handed over to the police, who contacted Candy's grandfather to see if he could identify them. They had a strong suspicion that the shoes belonged to the little girl that they had spent several days searching for. When Candy's grandfather saw the shoes, he told the police officers that they indeed looked similar to the ones that she had worn in the past. With his confirmation, officers decided to focus their search efforts on the area where the shoes had been found. Since it had already grown dark, conducting a search would be difficult that night, so they agreed to wait until the next morning. 
The following day was a Sunday, and by dawn, a team of officers and volunteers had arrived at the clearing where the shoes had been found. They immediately began looking through the area and initially found nothing. After some time went by, one of the officers suddenly came across a small mound made up of brush and pine needles. He found that it looked strange and decided to take a closer look. To his horror, it did not take him long to see a knee sticking out from under the pile, Mm -hmm. and he carefully brushed away the leaves to reveal the decomposing body of a child. He instantly recognized her as the little girl that they had been looking for. Mm -hmm. The clothes she was wearing were torn in several places, and when the officer looked at her feet, he noticed they were bound by a torn strip of cloth. Also wrapped around her neck was another strip of cloth looking as if it came from her clothing. Hmm. The officer quickly alerted the other searchers, and soon after, uh, the body was taken out of the area by the coroner uh, and, and taken off for an autopsy. Candy's relatives were immediately contacted and informed about the state in which she was found. Upon hearing that her only daughter was deceased, Elaine lost consciousness mm-hmm. and had to be placed under sedation. Boy, boy. More than a thousand searchers who had volunteered their time, resources, and energy to look for Candy were shocked by the news. Mm -hmm. There was a general feeling of dread in the air of town, and from that moment, many people began to fear for their safety as well as their children's. Mm -hmm. The result of the autopsy that was conducted on Candy's body revealed that she had been abused and then strangled to death. Detectives from the Spokane Police Department immediately began an investigation to find out who the perpetrator was. We will put every available man on the case and keep them there until this thing is solved, Police Chief Clifford Payne told the media at the time. We know who we're looking for now. We're looking for a maniac, he added. A lot of individuals were questioned, but detectives were unable to get any helpful information. The first person suspected by the authorities for committing the crime was an imprisoned serial killer by the name of Hugh Bayern Morse. And they had good reason for believing that he had something to do with it. He was a real piece of shit. When, yeah, when the autopsy was conducted on Candy's body, a strange purple smear that smelled like grape gum had been found on her clothes. And Morse was well known for having a special affinity for grape gum. Mm. However, when he was asked about Candy's murder, he denied any involvement in it. Because there was no actual evidence to show that he was the killer that they were looking for, charges could not be brought up against him. However, he remained a prime suspect in the case for a very long time. Apart from him, detectives also investigated the many, many tips that poured in after Candy's death, but none of them proved to be of any use. Candy was eventually laid to rest, and her devastated family members hoped that her killer would be brought to justice sooner than later, but several months went by after this, and the case remained a tough one for the detectives to crack. In June 1963, four years after Candy's death, her father Carl sadly took his own life, Mm. unable to cope with losing his daughter. At the time, he had been living in a hotel in Walla Walla, Years would go by, and Candy began to fade from the memories of many, but her family and the detectives of Spokane Police Department never forgot. 
quote, this is the kind of cold case that's been the giant log jam for cold cases. And in Spokane, I keep saying it's the Mount Everest of our cold cases, Hmm. the one that we could never seem to overcome. But at the same time, nobody ever forgot, end quote. This is detective, a quote from detective Zach Stormont of the Spokane Police Department major crimes. By 2001, there had been a significant advancement in DNA technology compared to the 1950s when, well, it, was, it wasn't even existent. Right. Candy's clothes recovered at the crime scene had been carefully stored by the authorities as evidence. These clothes were now submitted to the lab with the hopes that the killer's DNA could be identified. Forensic investigators quickly got to work and they discovered a semen stain on mm. Candy's underwear. They were able to isolate DNA from the sample, and it was used to create a DNA profile. It was an exciting period for detectives, as they felt closer than ever to solving the case. The newly developed DNA profile was then uploaded to CODIS, um, which stands for the Combined DNA Index System. Hmm. But unfortunately, no match was found in 2002. Detectives compared the DNA profile to that of Morse, who had remained on their radar for a long time. However, to their disappointment, they discovered that he was not the man they were looking for. Hmm. Nothing of interest would surface for another four years. In September 2006, Candy's heartbroken mother quietly passed away in her home at the age of 82. Hmm. She died never knowing who killed her precious daughter. Around 2017, forensic genetic genealogy came to the limelight as a new scientific method being used to solve several cold cases. The method uses DNA analysis and traditional genealogical methods to solve crimes and identify missing persons. In other words, it combines science with family history research Hmm. to piece together clues and bring justice to victims and their loved ones. That's like some people, that's their two favorite things is Mm -hmm. true crime and then family genealogy. Right. This shit came together. They're like, I will never stop watching (laughs) this. Right, right. So with the method gaining popularity, detectives decided to give it a shot and use it in helping them solve Candy's murder. Brittany Wright, a forensic scientist with the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory Division, got assigned to the case around that time. She was able to get her hands on a DNA sample that they had stored in the crime lab freezer since 2001. The next thing she did was reanalyze the sample to confirm that it matched the original perpetrator's DNA profile from 2001. Once she received this confirmation, she followed up with a diagnostic analysis to determine if it could be used for forensic genetic genealogy. The sample was then sent to a private forensic lab. However, this turned out to be futile. According to the lab, the DNA sample was just too degraded to work with. Hmm. Detectives' hopes were completely destroyed when they were given the news and they could hardly hide their disappointment. Another year would go by before detectives caught a lucky break. They learned about a particular laboratory that could efficiently work with degraded DNA, like the one in Candy's case. The laboratory was known as Othram, and it was located in Texas. Now, I don't know if it's Othram or Othram. I've seen it, um, I've heard it spoken both ways. Brittany reached out to them to inquire if Candy's case was eligible. 
Upon receiving a positive response, she then sent off a small amount of the remaining DNA sample for testing. Six months later, the lab came back with the result. Three brothers have been identified as possible suspects. Their names were John, Andrew, and Terry Hoff. As it turned out, all three were long dead. Uh, But upon further investigation, detectives discovered that one of the men, John, had a daughter named Kathy. They decided to contact her to let her know they were investigating her deceased father. Okay, out of nowhere. Well, yeah, that was probably came as a shock. Yeah. Quote, by that point, I had already looked up a little girl murdered in 1959, so I knew who it was, end quote. Hmm. Now, that, that was from Kathy. She provided detectives with a DNA sample, which was then analyzed, and the result was astonishing. It revealed that it was 2.9 million times more likely that Kathy's DNA was related to the suspect DNA profile than the general population. Wow. With this, the detectives became more certain that John was the killer that they had spent decades looking for. They then did a background check on him and discovered that in addition to growing up in Spokane, he lived about a mile from Candy's home at the time of her murder. He also had a troubled past. In 1956, at the age of 17, he enlisted in the Army. However, in 1961, two years after Candy's death, he was arrested for assaulting a woman. According to reports, he had approached the woman and used force to remove her clothes while she struggled and screamed for help. He then used her clothes to tie her up before trying to strangle her. Luckily, the woman survived the ordeal. For this crime, John spent six months in prison, and when he got out, the army labeled him a deserter and discharged him from service. Hmm. Six months. He got six months. Yikes. the heck? For strangling somebody. Yeah, yeah. So after this, John led a pretty normal life, or it seems. He worked as a door-to-door salesman, and he also worked in a lumber yard to make ends meet. However, at the young age of 31 he ended up taking his own life. Hmm. Now, apart from this, detectives also uncovered a possible connection between John and Candy. John Hoff's stepsister was a 10-year-old campfire girl at the time of Candy's murder Hmm. and had taken on the role of Candy's big sister in the program. Detectives believe that this was how John might have known Candy. When detectives uncovered all of this information about John, they decided to take one final step to confirm that he was Candy's killer. With Kathy's permission, as well as a search warrant, they traveled to the cemetery where John was buried and exhumed his body. A DNA sample was taken from his remains and was then sent to the lab for testing. The result was what detectives had expected. John was Candy's killer. Quote, we got extremely lucky in that we got DNA from 1959, end quote. This was a quote from Spokane Police Detective Brian Hammond, who had worked tirelessly on the case till he retired in 2021. Quote, people had no concept of DNA at the time, and that's obviously what cracked the case. Otherwise, I don't believe it would have ever been solved, Hammond said. Some of Candy's surviving relatives were contacted and informed about the breakthrough in the case. Hey, your family members. Are, <laughs> right. Yeah. Quote, it's not closure, but at least there's some form of satisfaction knowing that the person that did it is at least named. He may be in the grave, but he's named, 
said 77-year-old Joanne Poss, who was a cousin of Candy. Candy's relatives, however, remained saddened by the fact that her grandparents and parents never got to know who killed her. Quote, they never saw him pay or die for, for it or whatever. They went to their grave not knowing, and that was hard, uh, Joan said. As for Kathy, the revelation that her father was the murderer shook her to her core. I bet. Quote, it's just really sad to find out that someone, not even just your dad, but someone in your family could do something like that, Kathy said. John passed away when she was only nine, and she grew up believing that he had done it out of depression. Quote, and now I think, no, he was just evil, she said. Hmm. It wasn't an escape, in a way, from it, but he got to die with people thinking he was an upstanding man, and he wasn't, right. Kathy said. She also rendered a public apology for her father's crime and the pain it had caused the murdered girl's family. I'm very, very sorry for what my dad did, that he took her life horribly, she said. I hope that it gives peace knowing that, even though it's not really justice, because he doesn't get any punishment, his name has this on it now, and they can know it's solved, end right. quote. Through the act of one man, an entire family was plunged into darkness where they remained for more than 60 years. However, the determination and perseverance of several generations of detectives helped to reveal his identity and bring the Bree family much-needed closure. And they kept the DNA around for so yeah. long, too. Yeah. So after researching this case, I had so many questions. I mean... Does this seem like a first-time offender to you? No. Because Candy was his first victim, supposedly. But, um, he, but he got arrested for the same kind of attempt. Two, was it two years later? Yeah. And it done in the same way. Exactly. So I, I don't think so. I think that it was before. I mean, this was something that, uh, I don't know, it seemed to be... Who knows? He may have got away with it the right. first time, and he's like, "Oh shit!" Right, well, that's possible. Done more in between there. So, additionally, what about planning? Was it random? I mean, I don't know. Let me know what you think. Let's talk about it on the other side of the thing. All right. And now our dipshits talk about that dark ass story and the complications of DNA. Okay, so that one was dark, and I know it uh, was. We don't. Uh, it's that, home, and I'm sure some. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a dark case. I have a, a challenge with. Uh, children and stuff. Yeah, yeah with yeah. the kids. How? Why did how this get on your radar? This so recently, I've kind of uh, dove into local um, historical crime. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, as in the, like the last four years, five years or so, mm -hmm. um, just because there were a, a couple of circumstances where it was brought to my attention, and I stumbled across these cases. Right. Now, I learned about Candy's case at the same time that I learned about a, uh, the case of a, a woman named Millie. That's who, that's not her name, but that's the police um, identified her that way. Mm -hmm. But see, Millie's case happened, I think, in like 1983, 84, somewhere in there. Okay, and not related at all. No, not related. Right. But this one, uh, they were kind of side by side in the research. Oh, I see. Just okay. because it was local Spokane um, unsolved crime. Candy was the oldest one that I came across that had not yet been solved. And it's amazing to me that I discovered this case way before they solved it. Really? And then, yeah, I mean, That's I was cool. learning about it and it was just so sad to me because I was like, that little girl still 
Uh, her killer hasn't been identified as of 2021. But they he still has. kept, you know, DNA materials around. I think that's wonderful. For this case. I mean, mm-hmm. that means people retired. Many people retired. Yeah, it was six that. decades. Yeah, so. Six decades. That's like a of, tradition of keeping a cold mm-hmm. case open. I well, wonder how often they would, I wonder how often they would open it up. Like every couple of years, every five years? Yeah, I time. don't know. I don't know. I think it was just something that they would circle around, revisit. Um, maybe even every generation of investigators that would come through, it would land on their desk. Hmm. And uh, they'd reopen it and reinvestigate with a fresh set of eyes. And this was a big, high-profile case when it when it happened. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that died down. So it's kind of like a, it must have been a hand-me-down story too where they're like we just want to get this you know well yeah yeah it seems like it weighed heavily on the department yeah for decades yeah. decades and so it blew my mind that they had uh kept that evidence maintained the integrity of the evidence although right. it was still degraded but you can't i mean we expect it's a lot to ask for 60 years yeah. you Especially know the first few years when they're like right throw it in the cabinet right or many years so many cases now um recently over the past year or two are coming to the forefront um cold cases that were unsolvable because yeah. of dna you can't hide from the dna from no the, from all that well stuff. especially now so dna had a, a huge hole uh in it as far as investigation goes dna is um as far as we know to this point very reliable Mm -hmm. and i say that because i expect it will continue to be reliable forever but who knows they might come up with something else they might be able to show that dna isn't as reliable as we once thought but at this point that's what we got when it's paired with genealogy it's mind-blowing so Right, the the likelihood of that person being related to the killer was one in, or was was nine trillion or something. Yeah, it was just insane. It was two point four million times more likely than, than the, the general public. Right. It's like, well, that's, that's exactly probably it. Well, the thing that's blowing my mind right now is they're taking DNA evidence, they're sequencing that DNA, they're breaking it down, and they're actually building a genetic profile from the DNA. So it's almost like they're reverse engineering the DNA now, Mm -hmm. and they're pulling out the markers, and I don't know how it works, but they're pulling those things out, and they say, okay, this person uh, comes, the genealogy comes from this area of the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, this is their, um, whatever, their, their genealogical makeup, their gene makeup. Right. So... They pull all this stuff out and they say, okay, well, uh, light skin, dark hair, um, because they come from this area, they're going to have this type of bone structure. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to fall within these parameters. And so I found it fascinating because I've watched a few cases now and I've listened to and read a few where they've built these profiles out of a DNA sequence and they have a sketch of the person. And when they catch the person, it's, it's mind-blowing how close it is. Wow. So what they're doing is they have their DNA sample. They build a profile. They build a basic sketch out of... It's not really out of nowhere. God it's damn, coming from DNA. That will reduce DNA. crime by itself. Yeah. That by well, itself see, will do that. And what they're doing is they're taking this DNA, they're taking the sketch, and they're actually, at the same time, with this DNA in the sketch, they're following the genealogy mm-hmm. through the the uh, family trees, and they're coming up with a handful of potential families. 
And then they're going to the family saying, does this sketch look familiar to yeah, you? You guys got a son named Tim. I yeah. think he might be in a, well, they, a brick out there. See, yeah, well, they're coming things. to them not with even with a name. They're coming to them with a sketch saying, does this look familiar to you? You got a guy in the house that's uh, <laughs> kind of a dick. Yeah, well, this is what, you know, during Six this time period, they were in this area, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So um, there was another case that had been solved and come to find out the guy after they did this chasing around, the the suspect was the killer Ooh. on a totally different case, but they hit a dead end and they knew they were kind of confused for a while, but they hit a dead end because it just didn't match. The profile didn't match the family. And they were like, what? This doesn't work out. You guys aren't, you know, I don't even remember where the, the guy had come from. His genes came from a specific area. Come to find out he was adopted. Oh. Yeah. Which basically sealed the deal for the case because then they said, oh, he's adopted. Well, that makes sense. And that's more evidence that uh, solidifies this case. We need a warrant for his DNA. Right. And they solved that case. That's a totally different one. But still interesting. So what does this mean for the science? Like, uh, it's got to be a kind of a double edged sword always with, mm, mm-hmm. with these kind of things. This for as far as crime, when it comes to um, it's gonna be great. It's fantastic, mm-hmm. but we're human. Mm-hmm. So, and we're dipshits. How, how can we use this we're, for we're military human. and exactly. or nefarious purposes? We're human and we're dipshits because we're human. So how far will they go with it? Far, will they as take far as it, it can go. Will they take it out of crime and will they put it, it somewhere to, else? They'll give it to AI and they'll give it to robots and that will be what exterminates us. Uh, with, they'll, they'll go back because our no, genes will exterminate right, the genes. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It's It seems... Maybe it's great. It's great technology, and mm-hmm. maybe it's fine. But there is a uh, there's kind of an uncomfortable unknown in there for me personally, um, where I would tread lightly. I don't trust the people of today with the technology of tomorrow. <laughs> right now, I tell you now, we're going to see a lot of dystopian shit with today's right, people right. running around with the technology of tomorrow. Right. Well, you, you know, guys think about that shit <laughs> fighting on Twitter. I'm I'm very thankful for the DNA technology. Yes. I think it's fantastic. I'm also thankful for the genealogy. I think that's wonderful. And when those two come together, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, scary. A scary what's area. Your, what's your... I don't know. I don't even know what my fear would be. Um, maybe it's maybe it's not fear. Maybe it's awe. Maybe it's awe that they could take this stain. This. DNA profile, degraded DNA profile, yeah. and find the person. I guess my biggest challenge with this specific case um, is it kind of opens up when it comes to crime, murder, true crime, that sort of thing in cold cases. It opens up a moral dilemma for me. Um, do you go to the family? You're going to have to go to the family to get oh, DNA yeah. to prove it. Not only that, you're going to have to tell them why. Yeah. And when you find out that their beloved grandpa or favorite aunt was uh, <clears throat> a serial killer, it destroys their entire childhood and every memory that they made with that person. If, if it was good. T- if somebody told me anyone in my family, on my mom's side or my dad's side, were serial killers, I wouldn't change my childhood at all. Because it's like, yeah, oh, okay. 
for any of them. <laughs> Replace any of them with serial killer. I would be like, yeah, okay. Are you kidding me? Any of them. My mom, my dad, my cousins, my <laughs> aunts and uncles. Well, no. the, I guess I the, the hard part was they presented this 77-year-old woman with this information. She's 77 years old. And she was compelled to stand up in public and apologize for something she didn't do. Right. And that you should never have to apologize for something you played no part in. Right, for sure. And it I was, the, she was nine. Yeah. I get the the feeling of wanting to give some kind of closure. There's only a right. few people on earth that could have done it. And she can't, but she can offer some kind of. She could offer some type of uh, s- sympathy and support, but she was nine years old when yeah. her dad did this. I know. And you're doing, just because you're related to someone, the genetic dice is, you know, trillion sided. Mm-hmm. So you're not right. like, just a, you know, you're not a, a copy of your parents. So right. It's like, wow, you're probably a killer too. You can relate to your murderous parent. Like, yeah. No, so the, the, there's a, different. there's a show actually another woman from Spokane. I'm trying to remember her name. There's a show, and I think it's on A&E. It's called Killer in My Family. Mm-hmm. And she hosts this show because she's BTK's daughter. Oh, boy. I think. Yeah, I think she's BTK's daughter. Lives here in Spokane. Oh, wow. Um, and she hosts this show. We've, we've had a lot of serial killer stuff happen <laughs> in Spokane. Ted Bundy came through here. Was, we've had. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's fun. BTK's daughter. Um, and then uh, the other guy, um, shoot, not the Green River Killer, the one from the early 90s that was killing uh, sex workers on Sprague. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, on the South Hill. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Dang it. It slipped my mind. I don't have my notes in front of me. Another one that came from Spokane. Yeah. Quite a few. Yeah. And uh, our friend Getch. Yeah. Uh, it's lived, probably another one. No. Well, no, he <laughs> lived right down the street from that guy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it was weird right goodness gracious <laughs> very strange anywho um yeah that's our story um i'm curious what do you guys think i want to hear your opinions on this um and i'm sure there's the dna and the technology is fantastic yeah and i don't see a dark space not really um there could be some privacy issues i guess maybe the more i mean the more information that we give to mm-hmm. the state or the right. local authorities, right. I mean, it's again trusting people of today with challenges that we can't foresee in the future. Well, there's or a there is trusting people of tomorrow even. But. Right. Well, there's there's a weird gray area in there because we do have a standing HIPAA um, law where your medical information uh, is private, mm-hmm. uh, and medical information is DNA. Mm-hmm. So. There's a there's a weird little uh, quandary there because yeah. if you are subpoenaed, uh, you've given a warrant for your DNA, and I, it seems to me you would have to offer that. I, I don't wonder, know. I wonder they if you could turn it in any way you want. It's like, it's going to be in a cup and I'm going to jerk off uh, to it. They don't care. They'll take your eye boogers. Uh, they don't fucking care. I'm going to jerk off. If they're like, you are subpoenaed. Give me your DNA. It's like, well, here's a bunch of baby butter for you. Why don't you just shit in a cup instead? I'll shit in it and I'll mix it together. <laughs> you shit in the cup. With some starting. <laughs> Goddamn. Gross. 
I know. We'll just end it on that. All righty, all righty. Well, thank that you for listening. That was my contribution today. Semen <laughs> and poop. There yeah. we go. Yeah, it's a history of all mankind. Right. Yeah, it's good stuff. And blood. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. As yes. always, we appreciate you guys. Yeah. All the people in the litter box in our Patreon world. We appreciate our trusted turd triad mm-hmm. and our elder turds, the council of elder turds. Yes. The order of elder turds. Yes. There we a go. bunch of old poop. <laughs> Lots of poop everywhere. Uh, we appreciate the Godhead and the garbage disposal. Uh-huh. We appreciate PJ and Minnie doing our subreddits. Yes. And all of you that are helping us. There's, yes. There's memers out there and there's people sending us information and at info at scatcast.com. Mm-hmm. You can let us know some stories you might want us to look at. Right. We've got some uh, true crime and serial killers that you guys have sent us in yes. the direction of. Yeah, absolutely. We'll soon. Uh, of course, merch at scatcast.com. Mm-hmm. Well, and as always, we'll talk with you in the future. It'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye.